Hello and welcome to the Raw Fork Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marina Buxov, and I'm a functional medicine pharmacist in New York, as well as an integrative health coach and clinical herbalist. I'm pleased to go into season three of this podcast and continue to bring on other holistic-minded pharmacists and healthcare professionals to the show. I'm constantly inspired by my guests and their stories and love sharing their points of view with you all. Please enjoy the show. Greetings, everyone. I am super excited to welcome you all back to the show this week. Today, I had the pleasure of hanging out virtually with a person who blew me away with both her passion and wealth of knowledge and experience in the healthcare field. Dr. Marilena Gritani has been a clinical pharmacist for over 26 years and practiced in several hospitals and pharmacies throughout the U.S. But that's not the thing that makes her most impressive. How she got her credentials required a lot of work and dedication as she moved from a different continent and built both a career and a family and a foreign country. It's no wonder that her focus now is to empower each female that loves and cares about her family to make the best educated medical decisions to improve her family's health. She has built an entire community around her vision and passion. Dr. Marilena's legal drug dealer podcast launched earlier this year, originally focused on educating the listener about what pharmacists do, but quickly evolved to a medical platform for professional providers that want to educate around their areas of expertise and non-traditional medical ways to treat patients. Since then, the podcast has exposed topics like children's medications, menopause and its treatment with bioidenticals, how to confront fear about medical issues, how to get medication approved by insurance, and what good doctors want all patients to know. Dr. Marilena's most recent endeavor was a huge undertaking into a virtual conference called Taking Control of My Own Health an educational platform led by fellow professional medical experts. This summit allows for the general sharing of information and wisdom with those that need and want it. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Dr. Marilena. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm so pleased to have with me today, Dr. Marilena Gritani. She is a clinical pharmacist. She's the host of the Legal Drug Dealer podcast, and she just recently released the Take Control of Your Own Health Summit online. So that just aired. I'm so excited to have you on after that crazy busy week for you. Yes, it was. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I'm super excited to get into everything in your professional um, life, um, whatever you're willing to share. Um, let's just start with where you grew up and how you became a pharmacist. I grew up in Venezuela in South America. I lived there until I was 30 years old and I got married and we moved here because of his job. So um, it was interesting to change health system. It, it, it was super interesting. Um, but then here I, I had to adapt and it was, it was a challenge. Um, why did I become a pharmacy, a pharmacist? I was in, in, in the mode of being a doctor. That's what my mind was always since I was little. Um, but then my little dog got sick. She got preeclampsia and I took her to the doctor. I was 16, almost going to start medical school. 
And I fainted when I saw her blood uh, flowing. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be a doctor. I can't do this. So then I said, well, what is closer that I can help patients with their health, but not to have surgery and to have to see blood. So that's why I picked pharmacy. And I'm very happy I did because we help patients and people in general in another level that physicians can't. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hear those stories all the time, people not being able to, um, you know, see the sight of blood, or um, my uncle was ended up being allergic to either penicillin or something like to the point of anaphylaxis. So he also like kind of dropped that idea because you, you would have to work a lot with medicine. Yeah. Um, anyway, so how is the pharmacy system in Venezuela? Is that where you got licensed first? Or? Yes. Yes, I, I, I graduated in 93 and uh, I never practiced pharmacy as what we practice here in the U.S. because it's not, it's more as a, a, a lower level paid uh, job. So I decided to go to the pharmaceutical industry and that's what I did for about six years in sales and then I became a product manager and then I went in management uh, for that. That's, that's why I got my um, master degree in pharmaceutical marketing, because that's what I thought I wanted to do. I was really good at it and they paid really good. And I traveled the world and I was super happy with that. But then we moved here and things changed. And uh, I went and did exactly what I was planning to do when I became a pharmacist in Venezuela that I couldn't. Uh, I wanted to be a clinical pharmacist. I wanted to help people educate them and, and help them prevent uh, chronic diseases or revert them when possible. And also uh, for them to understand the why they're taking X or Y medication so they will be compliant and they would do what is necessary for them to be better. Because most of the time patients think that doctor ordered me that, but I don't know why. And I'm not going to take it. I don't think it's important. And then once you educate them, things change. And, and that was exactly what I wanted to do. So that I, I got the opportunity to do it here. So it was perfect for me. Yeah. So how did um, that work? How did you um, add on and complete your doctor of pharmacy training here? Um, and then how did you get that clinical position? I went to uh, University of Colorado. They have a PharmD program that is online. And uh, for me, it was a refresher because I went to pharmacy school probably 17 years before I moved here. So it's not the same when you, you know, and then you don't practice clinically speaking. So it was great for me. It was three years that I did online while I was working. And uh, it was like a, a great refresher. It was totally different because it was another language and another uh, type of education. It was completely different, but I loved it. I, I felt empowered because I have the information back in my hands to be able to use it with my patients. The first position that I got was in a retail pharmacy because you know that that's what where they need more most of us. And uh, I thought it was important for me to learn that part of the business because I had no idea how it worked in Venezuela. It's quite different, and actually, I never worked on it. Just the you know the internship that you have to go through the rotations, but that was it. And uh, I got the I got an opportunity in a little town in the middle of nowhere in East Texas, and uh, they trained me, and it was fabulous. Uh, it was a 450 bed hospital that had people had issues recruiting people, so they would give opportunities to people like me, and they trained me 
in a way that I would never be able to pay them back for. And the opportunities were open for me after that position. So it was great. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I want to go back a little bit to the online pharmacy program. So did they um, offer any kind of experiential rotations and appies? Yes, and that, that's what helped me with uh, my rotations because I was working as a full-time pharmacy director at a rehab hospital, and I couldn't, I, I mean, the number of rotations that I needed to complete uh, required me to leave my job, and I needed my job. So it was very, at the beginning, I thought, well, I won't be able to complete it because it's just too limiting. It's for full-time students, and I was a full-time mom and worker, and I needed to you know, I couldn't leave my hospital just because of this project of mine. So um, they were flexible with me. And I had a bunch of uh, my, my regional director of pharmacists supported me because she went through the same process. So it was it was way easier. Also, I was able to pull a couple of patients that I had before in my prior job where I was working in the IV room and mainly doing chemotherapy. So it was easier for me to do complete those rotations. And they were very flexible with me, but I did complete, oh, torture, uh, <laughs> lots of, yeah, it was quite hard. But um, it was way easier than I thought it was going to be. Wow. Flexibility-wise, flexibility-wise, not the, the subject, not the, the classes, nor the, the uh, projects that I needed to present to them. Yeah, that's amazing that they worked with you. Um, mm-hmm. Really glad that they they were able to be flexible for people's needs. Yeah, um, I was. I had the I had the uh, the resume. I had everything there, uh, and they understood that it was just a matter of flexible. And then work because my again my re- regional director of pharmacy knew that I was doing that. She was flexible with me. Everybody was flexible. That's what I'm trying to say. Not just yeah. the university. Also, also they did. Yeah, and then you probably had to change, um, you know, take the test and the licensing exams in whatever state that you ended up working in. Yes. Uh, yeah, I just have five. That's it. Just it's five? five. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No big deal. Yeah. No, 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 no. But honestly, after California, any test is, is, is a piece of cake. Yeah, because they yeah. have their own Netflix version, right? It, yes, yeah, it's, it's called CPJE. Uh, California jurisprudence uh, pharmacy examination and it is tough wow it's it's not it's not a pharmacy test it's a, it's a I don't know what it is but it's not a knowledge based test it's a ma- matter of guessing or, or I don't know anyways that that was a hard time for me but I have I'm licensed in Texas well started in Nevada then Texas Colorado, California, and now here in Nevada, where in in Arizona, where I live. Nice. So um, after that Texas hospital, what were your other jobs afterwards, and where did you end up working? Well, I was uh, I was working in this clinical in this uh, clinical position in this hospital, and uh, I got recruited to become a director of a small hospital that was opening in, in Corpus Christi, Texas. Also, was in the south. And uh, I didn't want to do it because of my, my manager, managerial experience back in Venezuela. So uh, I was able to put it together. I had great mentors that supported me and helped me. Uh, but I, that, was, that was the best job that I ever had. It was, I, I went, I, I came from patients broken coming into the ER. And for, I was a uh, ACLS pay, uh, pharmacist. So I was running 
when I was working to almost all blue, uh, code blues. And I went from seeing that to a hospital that discharged patients that came in a stretcher and then walking or with a cane or, or, or crutches. It was, it was life-changing. Wow. It was the different, totally different experience. So anybody that is out there, if you have the opportunity to work in a, in a rehab, inpatient rehab hospital for, um, not for drugs, the other type of rehab, uh, I will absolutely recommend it because it's very, very rewarding to see patients coming in in a stretcher and leaving work, uh, walking by themselves or with a cane is just, is amazing. Wow. So can you tell us a little bit about what your you know, daily work uh, looks like nowadays. I mean, you just hosted an amazing summit and then you are, have been the host of your podcast. How did that all kind of play out? Well, uh, honestly, yesterday I did nothing. I spent three days having vacation because I was super, super tired. Um, I conducted some interviews during the weekend with people that attended to the to the conference just to know what I did well what, because it was my first time. But normally what I do, I, I batch everything because I need to be able to uh, perform everything else that I need to do. And, and, and I work from home and my husband does too. So it's a, it's a challenge. So uh, what I normally do is I, I schedule days and hours of the day for interviews, for discovery calls, for um, actual recording. And then I have somebody that works for me that, with me that actually does the auditing and getting everything set for, for the website where the podcast is hosted. But um, that part is very... Um, it's very technical, so I just decided to uh, outsource it. But talking about the the getting people in, and you know that uh, you want people that have quality that are uh, that they can speak when they get a little nervous. You need people that have content that is interesting to your audience, and it, they also could deliver it in a way that that they could understand. So um, the discovery call, which is how I call it, is when I meet with somebody for the very first time and then we talk about what they do and how they do it. And I would say that that would take probably 30 to 40% of my time uh, for the podcast because I need to make sure we're on the same page that we the information that they would provide would be beneficial for everybody and that would enhance the quality of the podcast i i try not to get people that are not that experienced because um i don't think it gets that much of a you know uh, i don't know safety or or the fact that they think that they are you know knowledgeable enough but i do have people that are young and, and, and upcoming pharmacists or other professions because they have stuff that is new. So I just uh, present it in a different way. My focus is not only to educate people that want to listen to the podcast and learn about health and prevention of chronic diseases or anything related to nutrition or, or, or health in general, but also to support and expose and, uh, and lift other medical professionals that are out there trying to do what we do like you. So that's why I want all you also to come to my podcast, but that's not the reason only because I love herbs and I need to learn everything that you know. So that will be a good way to start. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I'd love to exchange and reciprocate and come on the show. 
Um, so who do you mostly interview and what um, are the subject matters that you talk about? I started doing solo interview, uh, solo presentations, solo episodes, because I wanted people to understand what we do and how we do it. In general, uh, what they think that we do, and this is common lingo between pharmacists, is that you just have to put a label in a bottle and count some pills. And then you're like, oh my gosh, you have no idea what we do. So I started explaining what a pharmacist is, what is a clinical pharmacist, what a pharmacist in a retail pharmacy does, and what we do in hospitals, and you know all the different uh, possible jobs that we can um, develop in the community for people to understand, and also to understand that we're doctors. They think that technicians and pharmacists are the same thing, and it, it, it was a lack of education, and that's in my very modest podcast I tried. And then I realized that people wanted to know general information about stuff of the daily thing that doesn't necessarily have to be with a uh, pathologies or any any disease that is just like happening to them, but just for them to get educated so they could find out if if they ever get it, what to do. So I had people talking about, I have mainly, I would say half of the people that, that I interviewed were pharmacists because that was my original mission to enhance and support my profession and my colleagues. And uh, we had people that talk about menopause, about pre-diabetes and how to handle and how to stay there or reverted to non, not even close to diabetes. And then I have people talking about um, uh, pelvic floor and uh, bladder health, all stuff mainly for females, because I realized by that point that most of my listeners were female. So it was very, it was a realization for me, but it was very important for to also show them stuff for little kids and for elderly and for males, because the mom, the wife, the daughter is the one that, you know, oversees everybody, always there to support everybody. So all of us, you and me, we're daughter, we're granddaughter, we are probably a spouse, and then we might be a mom or an auntie or a sister or a friend. So if we know females, we know information, we will spread it as needed to people that are around us, that are our loved ones. And that's why I started to make it a little bit more um, with more variety. So we start to talk about sexual uh, dysfunction and talk about uh, hormones and how to deal with stress and anxiety. Um, I ended up having endocrinologists and functional medicine physicians and nutritionists because I believe what they do is what it is. What it needs to, actually didn't need it to change to what it is right now. I think we need to go back to it. And I support them fully. I, I, I believe in it. Yeah, absolutely. So is that how the idea for the summit came together? Because you were noticing like these themes and um, lack of patient education. And you just wanted to give like more tools to uh, people that are going through the healthcare system. That was one of the reasons and some uh, emails from the listeners asking specific questions. But it actually happened because I became a patient and uh, it was very frustrating. I didn't know how to handle it. I was misdiagnosed by six different specialists and uh, I ended up diagnosed by a physical therapist. 
And that was just like mind blowing to me. I was told by six different doctors that I had the same thing. And then this physical therapist said, that's not what it is. We're treating that for this long. It's not working. This is what you have. Go see this specialist because this is the person that is going to diagnose you. And actually that's what happened. And uh, I was very frustrated that after working in hospitals and directly with physicians and having a relationship with them, I still didn't get what I needed as a patient, knowing the healthcare part that I knew, I couldn't get it for me. And I thought, well, if this is happening to me, what is going to happen to a 75 year old lady that is out there being diagnosed with stuff that she doesn't know what to do or who to see, or if she sees a doctor that is not knowledgeable enough to help or support her, or if the insurance company simply decides to deny any, any of the claims that this person might have, whether it's a medication or a treatment, and they don't know what to do. So I said, if I struggled, I imagine how they did. And people that have nothing to do with healthcare, like if you are a gardener, if you are a lawyer, if you are, you know, whatever other profession that you have, you are normally health illiterate because you don't know. It's not your, your forte. So I decided that I wanted to gather people to teach them what they needed to know so they would get empowered and, and take ownership and then say, okay, doctor, I respect your opinion, but that's not how I want to be treated. Because it's not only what the doctor said, it's also what my religion is, is what my culture is, is what I believe on, is what I want to do in the future. Not because you tell me that I need chemotherapy, that's what I'm going to do, because I don't believe in chemotherapy, because I want to leave whatever God gives me. You know, every patient has, every person has a, a, a set of beliefs that need to be respected. And most physicians, mainly the old, older uh, physicians are very, but this is what I want. And I'm the doctor, I'm the one that knows and, and you do what I say, or you go. And, and that's a freedom that I wanted also to give patients. If the doctor doesn't give you what you need, then you find another one. Or if the insurance denies you what you need for whatever situation you have, then you have to appeal, then you have to write letters, then you have to make your voice heard. So then you get what you need. And also you get to choose what other plans or insurances you need to have. So then whatever you have or you might have is going to be taken care of. Because most people buy an insurance as a just in case they never expect to use it and then when they do and they realize that it's not good enough then probably gets them to a point which we know in the u.s that a lot of people end up being in bankrupt because they they didn't expect it they didn't know how to handle it and and I, I'm, I'm doing my part a little bit of information for them to have a little bit of uh, a starting point for them start researching towards what they need it's not that we give medical advice or we tell them what to do we expose them with a variety of information that otherwise they wouldn't have and uh, for them to decide, I'm going to go this way, I'm going to go that way. If they decide to consult Dr. Google, at least they would know where to start and what not to look for. And, and if they find something A or B, they, they would have enough information to say, no, that's not what I need. I need to go this other way. Because whether we like it or not, patients Google stuff and they want to make sure that you whatever, whoever you are, uh, are right. Because Google is the check, fact checker. And it's just, it's just interesting how people, patients think these days. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, sometimes they might read something, um, 
may or may not be true, but they're more likely to believe it because it's published, yeah. even if it's Wikipedia or Google yeah. or somebody's blog. Um, so it's important mm -hmm. to realize like what reference can be trusted versus what maybe can be doubted. Yes, yeah. And, and uh, they want something that acts fast. They want, because this is the culture that we live these days. Uh, you want, well, actually it happens to me if I grab my phone and I'm looking at something and it doesn't load quickly, I just turn it off and look for something else. Because we, it's the mentality, it's how it works now. Unfortunately for health, in general, we're not talking about the treatment only. We're talking about prevention or, or simply living a healthy life and having a, a wellness uh, in mind when you're living or making decisions for your life. Uh, people are not patient to wait. People are not, they want something immediate. So unless something big happens like a stroke or a heart attack or something that changes their lives or they get diagnosed with cancer, is when they start doing something. But the mentality needs to be, if I do this for a bunch of years, I'm going to end up here. So if I don't, I will not. So it's, it's, it's better to do that. But that's something that I criticize uh, directly, personally, about the health system in the US. There's no prevention. There's no support to prevention. And also, physicians are not trained to prevent. Physicians are trained to fix, to repair, to, to, this is the solution, go get it and get better. But nobody finds the root and the how, because it's how they're trained, uh, or, or find out if the, the, the diet or nutrition is the issue or the area where they live or simply the um, culture. Because, you know, at home we ate what we ate because it's what grandma knew what to cook. And then my mother learned from her and that's what I ended up eating. It doesn't mean that it's healthy. Mm -hmm. For me, it is because it's what grandma gave me, but doesn't necessarily mean that it was the best for me. It's the best that she could. And she had third grade education. So if you think about it, it's not that you're disrespecting her memory or, or her legacy. It's simply that you need to do what is better for you now that you're more educated. But that balance for patients is, is a little bit between what they believe, what they love, and what they feel between what they need to do, what the future uh, will give them, and what they understand that science have found out recently. It's, it's a tough call for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of well, wisdom and traditions, um, traditional yeah. healing modalities or traditional ways of eating. But because we're all like so interculturally intertwined and mixed, yeah. and we all move globally nowadays from all over the place. So we kind of lose um, that local culture piece. And we try to recreate it in the new places that we live. And sometimes that's not good either. So, um, you know, usually the reason why we eat the way we did was because it was the local food around us. Um, but then when we moved to a new place, now we have new, new things local to where we are. So it's difficult to figure out, should you be following your ancestral diet? Should you be eating locally? Should you be following a blood diet? Like what new fad of thinking and science and health theory should you fall into? So it's, it's good to kind of get all the tools that we have and analyze each person individually for what they might need. That's what I ask to uh, people that come or listen to my podcast or come to the conference. I, I just tell them, I am not here to tell you what to do. I'm not here to 
give you medical advice. I'm here to give you more data to put in your mental algorithm for you to make your own decision and adapt it to whatever you want. Because the more you know, the more powerful you are and the smarter decisions you can make to make what is called informed decisions. I mean, you, you, you don't want to make mistakes. You don't want to do something that is not going to be good for you. But if you don't know that it's bad or not as good as it should have been, how would you know if you should do it or not? So that's why people that, that, need, that need to seek for information and, and they have that need, then they get a little bit better. And the problem is that the also culture and beliefs is that, well, if they go to a doctor, they're going to find something bad and then they will die soon. And it's just mind-blowing to me that even in this 2020, people still think like that. Yeah, basically, it's it's easier to be ignorant or blind to something rather than find out and then have to make a decision for it. Yeah, I, I think it comes from a place of fear, uh, definitely, but it's not well-founded. Uh, and I remember when I was doing my rotation uh, in in Georgia, we because my first language is Spanish, and I see how unattended this community is. I understand that they shouldn't learn the language if they're going to come live here, but I cannot change them, their mentality. What I can do is support them because that, that I could be the bridge. So I created a bunch of, I know I was crazy, I know I was, but I had fun and it was needed. I created a bunch of uh, clinics that were done on the, on the weekends. So I found doctors and I found nurses and PAs and hospitals helped me with supplies and stuff. And we did, you know, sugar, uh, blood sugar, cholesterol, uh, blood pressure, weight. And then I had a PA at the end to kind of, uh, you know, tell them what to do and, and guide them a little bit for people to have at least something for them to know something. And, you know, we, in, in about three months during the summer and a little bit of the fall uh, time and that year, we got over 700 patients that came over through this. And uh, I was very proud of it because, you know, people finally got some support and, and the community there responded beautifully, the hospitals and the nurses. But during one of those events, I had a patient that had a blood pressure of 420. Uh, in my book, look at your face, in my book, that is a medical urgency. Call 911, this person needs to go to the hospital right now. And the patient is, no, this is normal. This is what I normally have. Hold on. I understand that you might have it before, but that doesn't mean that it's normal. And he said, no, no, I'm fine. I'm, and I don't want to go to the doctor because the hospital, because they're going to put me in the hospital, they're going to give me medications and I won't take them. And then I will be back here. So I don't want to. So I had to make him sign a form telling us that he didn't want us to call 911 for him, even though all those, and his blood sugar was over 300. It was just, it was just, it was crazy, but that was his normal. And he was as chilled as I am right now. I was freaking out, but he wasn't. So, you know, uh, culture and uh, tradition and the, the, the switch, which happened to me, how uh, medicine or, or health system works in their countries and how it works here is totally different they don't have a, a doctor that is your doctor that you can talk about anything. 
you because you have 10, 15 minutes to see a doctor and it's never a conversation. It's always questions, answer, questions, answers. Okay, we're done, bye. And, and that doesn't, for them, it's not medicine. They don't trust the health system here. It's what it is. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. Um, actually, you know, health and medicine in other countries is, I think, conducted very differently from America. You know, a lot of other countries don't have insurance plans to help patients pay for things. So everything is out of pocket. Um, having said that, a lot of the services are also much cheaper and much more affordable. So the same brand name medications sold in Europe for much cheaper or in Canada even for much cheaper and in other countries. So similar companies all over the world selling the same thing, but with different prices in each country. Um, and then insurances are paying different amounts based on contracts. Or if you don't have insurance, um, it, the issue of compliance is very real in other countries because with no insurance, patients don't have free medicine every month. They basically have to go and buy it when they need it. So they tend to only take it when they feel bad. They don't take it on a preventative method like they do here. Um, so I think personally that there could be like a mix of both worlds and we can focus on very free or at least very affordable uh, methods of prevention by using diet lifestyle education first you know and when you mentioned the caretaker is usually like the female so the matriarch of the household you know the grandma mother sister usually they are the first line so whenever something is wrong you get a you know a cut or a scrape yeah, um, anything, stomach ache, uh, the, you know, the person in the household that usually gets the first aid um, out is usually the mom or, you know, the sister, the grandma, or the grandma cooks something or, you know, takes something out of the medicine cabinet. So if we ha like kind of revert to that as our first line, we don't have to go to the emergency room for everything, right? We just take self-care at home or ask your caregiver for their help. If the problem persists, then we go seek some help, right? Um, and then with that, we also try to find out the root cause, what is causing this person to have that blood pressure. You know, um, sometimes the pills might help, but you have to take the pill every day. If you skip one, one day, you're gonna, you know, get a medical emergency on your hands. So I feel like there needs to be a combination of, you know, proper diet and lifestyle, mind, body, you know, medicine, and, and then pills in a last resort, not as a first line. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, and not only that, I believe that medications are good for a period of time. And it's not, there's not a magic pill like people want now. Yeah, I, I, I won't stop eating junk, but I will take Lipitor. That's what they said this weekend <laughs> to me. So, and of course, we don't talk about Lipitor anymore because, well, now it's generic. And we also, we talk about some Simvastatin or Rosuvastatin. I mean, it's another mentality, but that's what they have in their mind. And uh, they rather are attached to another pill on their daily uh, life than prevent it or revert in it. And, and that's something that blows my mind. And in my culture, in the Latin culture in general, I'm not talking about Venezuela only, but in all Latin America, nobody wants to take pills. They, they don't want to do that. So, okay, I have this problem. How do I fix it? What do I need to do 
to go back to my normal me because I don't want to take this for the rest of my life. And, you know, in some cases it's possible, but in other cases it's not. So you have to work with the patient and, and, and educate them. In the U.S., it's totally the opposite. Give me more pills. That's fine. I remember once a patient came over and, and, and she, when I was working in one of the retail pharmacies, and she said, oh, I got a sleeping pill uh, because uh, I just can't sleep. And then she said, but I also have narcolepsy. Okay. And uh, if I don't take both of them, then I can't I can function. And she, it was a new patient. And when I checked her profile, she was taking Wellbutrin as well. And I said, well, let's just talk because this is not, this is, doesn't make any sense to me. How could you, how do you need to take a sleeping pill, but you're also narcoleptic? It's just very interesting. So she started talking and I said, well, how do you take your meds? You know, the first basic question. And she said, every night I take my Wellbutrin XL. Okay. So that's a problem. And, and, she didn't understand that just to change the medication schedule, just to take it in the morning instead of at night, uh, would it change everything. So basically, because she couldn't sleep during the night because of the effects of this drug, and then during the day, she was too sleepy because she didn't sleep, she was diagnosed with two things that were 100% a side effect of a medication. So I couldn't believe that any practitioner nurse practitioner, uh, I don't know, uh, physician assistant or doctor would do that. I'm like, ask questions, find out where the problem comes from. But, you know, as one of the doctors during the summit said, uh, you know, if I don't give a diagnosis and a solution to it, we don't get paid because the code, the billing code, it implies that and then it doesn't happen. So it's, she understands and she admits that it's broken that shouldn't be like that but it is what it is it, it, it she has to be part of it and it, it just blows my mind that this is what it has become and that's why i'm so supportive with functional medicine because people say that it's more expensive it, it is not if you if you take in consideration the time that they dedicate to you and finding the route the root of the the problem and then preventing it and modifying it is is well invested you know but it's a mentality thing again yeah i think um it for me goes back to like um first line second line third line type of thinking so as i mentioned before the first line for me is like taking care of yourself at home doing prevention like leading a healthy lifestyle like like you said before there's no magic pill it's kind of a commitment to choosing to take care of your health every day it's a habit it's a practice it's not just one day i care about myself the next day i'm not going to do anything so of course you can't be perfect 100 percent, but you can commit to um to that as a practice you know forgive yourself if you slack off a little bit and then get back on the track um so the second line would be to try to consult with somebody um then maybe you might need to get additional testing to get a diagnosis um, eventually, then you might get offered some kind of treatment, whether it's a surgical or invasive or maybe something non-invasive. Um, I often came um, head to head with doctors over, you know, diagnosing and over prescribing and over um, just doing like invasive treatments when 
something basic could have been helped or or modifying like diet and lifestyle and simple things that could have helped and instead of like jumping these steps directly into something like super scary and uh, traumatic so um you know i think it has to be a balance like yeah everybody wants answers everybody wants answers quickly people can get frustrated if there isn't any answer or if you have to wait for results but i think if we have that education and the mindset that this is um, a normal part of health that you you have to be the one in control of your health and you're in control of the decisions and then you're able to choose which practitioners you trust you know and build that relationship with the practitioner and not just listen to like the first person that you go to get second opinions. Um, with insurances, it's also like very difficult, right? Because they might cover a practitioner that you don't like, but not cover one that you do like. A lot of them do not cover any functional medicine visits. Um, you know, so, you know, I feel like it has to be made more accessible too, if there's enough um, insurance awareness of a need for this new type of medicine, if we have enough like evidence that it is helpful because it's not affordable to a lot of people, you know, some people can't afford it out of pocket, but a lot of people cannot. But also, also people that are able to afford it, they don't understand it. And they think that it's like voodoo or something weird instead of what everybody else is doing. And uh, the ignorance of where it comes from makes them think, stuff that are not true and and they related to other stuff and it's just it's just a lack of information that's why i think that my my small uh, platform needs to be to offer people that want to learn and want and are a little bit open to learn a little bit of information again to put it in their mental algorithm for them to make their own decisions um need to continue we need to even even when we feel that people are not getting it we need to continue doing it until there's the moment that for x or y person that's going to be the time that they can listen whether it's because they resonated with them for whatever reason or is because they saw somebody or something happening because um it's the only way that they would be open to that they just feel i'm okay i feel okay why do I need to do anything? And um, they don't understand that it takes years of you damaging yourself for your body to say, you know, you've been doing this for 20 years. I, I'm trying to repair everything that you keep doing to me. I don't have anything else to do. So now I'm going to break. And then it's when they are like, okay, now that it broke, let's do something. That shouldn't be. That shouldn't be. It, it's like you are if you're causing damage to yourself, it's like self-harming. It's, it's just, it's mind-blowing that people still don't understand that. Yeah, absolutely. I think people don't understand where it comes from either. You know, sometimes we copy the bad habits of the families that we grew up in. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we don't even realize, like you were saying, that it's bad. Like if it's a way of cooking, it's just always been like that. So we don't think that that could be a problem you know, um, unless we get that education and that other point of view, um, we just don't, don't think anything of it. That's how I always ate. And that's what I like. Um, and I don't want to try anything else. You know, it's like that resistance pattern of changing one's habits. Um, you're, you're automatically resistant to any kind of change. 
but change is the only yeah. constant in life. You know, change. Isn't that interesting? Yes, yeah. absolutely. We have to keep evolving, growing, changing, um, making ourselves happier, healthier, um, progressing. And that, you know, what, what we used to do in the past usually stops working at some point. So we just have to keep on growing um, and adapting to that change. Yeah, uh, that's very interesting that you talk about that because um, I understood that as a patient and with my patients. Um, and then I said, okay, where is this coming from? And my coach, my executive coach, she, she said, that's fear. And then they have, and if you watch that, I always talk about it because I love it. There's a little, uh, it's, a, it's a cartoon movie that is called Inside Out. And it's where you have these main characters that are fear, joy, um, happy, um, sadness, and anger, and another one that I don't remember what it is, but uh, each one of them play a role. And uh, fear makes her free. I mean, don't not do anything. Like be in a corner and just cry and not talk, not do nothing. And, and that is a very good way for me to expose it to people. That's what fear is doing to you. So let's just find out if your fear is based. Let's just understand what your fear is coming from. Get education about it. And then if you still are afraid, fine. If not, you're going to be like, oh, my God, have I been afraid of something that is that simple? And, and that's what I call voices in your head. You have voices in your head that are telling you, don't do this because this is going to happen. Like Latina moms. And I'm like, I'm guilty. I don't want my kids to do ABC because something could happen. You know, a, a, a UFO can come over and then uh, take you away. And I'm like, hold on, wait what what would i think that where is that coming from i'm like you voices shut up because this is not sense i mean i mean i want my kids to be protected i want to to take care of them as i did since they were little but you need to be you need to analyze where the fears are coming from and once you break them down and you understand that that fear might be based on a movie that you watched when you were three years old right you're like oh, okay, I need to have a new mindset or, or at least uh, what to refer to instead of what I thought it was when I was three because, of course, your brain were, was not mature enough. You didn't have enough information and, and then it was very scary, right? And, and that happens to a lot of what we're scared of, including health. And that's, that's why I talked, that was one of my presentations during the, the, the conference because I wanted people to, see where it's coming from and, and, and somebody talk about fear and when you confront that fear and you're like, oh, okay, I get it. I, I shouldn't have done that. So let's just fix it. But it's not easy because they're so afraid of their fear that they don't want to touch it. Yeah. Um, what is that Winston Churchill quote? Uh, the only thing to fear is fear itself. Um, yeah, because the only way out is usually through like you actually have to yeah. face it in order to overcome it you can't just avoid it because avoiding it won't let it go away it's just still going to be there waiting for you you know and just waiting to strike mm -hmm. so i think it's true i think people are are afraid of finding out you know a bad answer a bad diagnosis or um that's why they kind of want to avoid getting the education because they don't want to face the possibility that they might need to use this education in the future.
But I think the more tools we have, you know, we kind of arm ourselves with the knowledge and use it to our advantage. Um, hopefully, well, we won't need to use it. But if we do, it's there for us, you know. And I think only people like us that have personally like gone through the system and found faults with it or had a family member go through it. Um, we are the ones who want to educate ourselves and others. Um, and people usually just um, want education when something bad does happen. It's difficult to kind of tell yourself, well, um, maybe I should just in case educate myself, um, you know, because they think if, if I start thinking about it, it's going to happen. So, yeah. That's fear. And that comes, is very, the only reason that you can explain that is, from a place of fear and anybody that is listening to this and and doesn't get what what we're trying to say go watch that little movie it's a cartoon movie it's supposed to be for kids but actually the director and the and the producer of the movie uh had a daughter that was 11 years old going through all those changes that we girls know that we went through and they were horrible and he didn't understand what was going on so he started uh, researching with psychiatrists and psychologists and then he understood where that came from and they helped him write the script of the movie about each character that was again fear joy sadness uh, anger and the other lady that i never remember what she is but um if you understand where it comes from, you can analyze it better. And then things are not going to be the same forever. And that is exactly what it needs to be. Change needs to continue because, you know, if I could have the legs that I had when I was 23 years old, it would be awesome. But I'm almost 50. I don't have them anymore. So it doesn't mean that my legs are bad or they don't work. It's simply that I put 30 plus more years on them. And of course, they have lived you know, and they have the consequences and that's what it is and, and aging and all the normal processes. So if we expect to be the same way that it was when we were mindful of it or conscious of it, it's living in, a, in, 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 in an unrealistic place. And all that is, and it causes anxiety to people and that's where fear comes from. Everything is, is changed, is, is pushed by fear. And until you are, you know, centered enough or needing to break this down and digest it and truly understand it, it's not going to go away. That's why it's a process. That's why the ones that are out there educating and, and hoping that people, when they get it, can stop. Because at the day that they decide that they will do this uh, and analyze it and break it down in pieces, they will be ready to listen. But if we already gave up, they would not have the chance and all the opportunities that we can bring them. And, and that would be terrifying. So we need to, even when it's not as beautiful as, as, you know, flowing the way that you want it to flow, you can't give up. It, 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 that's your mission and that's what you need to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, um, the more we talk about it and the more we kind of normalize that, it happens to people, it even happens to us healthcare professionals that we can't see from the outside what's happening when you're inside of it, right? So you, you do need the support of other people, you do need um, a community. Um, it's okay to feel these feelings of fear and anxiety because this is a society that we live in. But the more we talk about it and we realize we're not alone in it and there are other people going through these experiences, the more also we empower ourselves to make different choices that will be better for us. 
And, and the last thing that you need to think as a human being is that you are an example for a bunch of people, whether it is that you're a mom and you have, so you have kids, you're an example for these kids, or you might be an example for a neighbor or for your husband, your wife, your husband, or your elders, because. Are you recording already? Okay. Um, it doesn't matter what, how old you are. If you're in the elderly or you're young or you are in the middle, you need to be responsible and you need to do it for others, not only for your own health. And remember, you are responsible for that, but also they are at, the, at their own way. So it's, it's a mutual learning and just be open and just accept that there is other people out there that might know something that you do not know. And again, what you said, the only constant is change. So why would you battle it? What would you be against it? You need to adapt is, is, is life is what it is and, and live the best life that you can. And nobody thinks about what, how bad could be at the end but we've seen it in the hospital when you have multiple diseases, chronic diseases that one makes another one worse and then there's not that much that we can do. And then it's when they want to make changes and they want to drink stuff and they want to go places to get anybody that would do anything for them. But that is too late. You need to start with that since the beginning so you prevent it, which is ideal. And I wish insurance companies will understand that. And that way we will... Uh, spare a lot of pain and suffering and a lot of money as well. I wish one day they do get it. Yeah, uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on um, to the show. I have just one minute left. Would you mind having a really rapid fire question? No, not at all. Go ahead. So, so question one, what uh, is your number one advice to improve someone's quality of life right now? Do what is healthy for you, whatever you need. Just don't do what others tell you to do, but it is for you. Awesome. Number two, what's your favorite beverage? Water, <laughs> cold water. All right. Number three, what's your favorite hobby or pastime? Cooking and dancing and doing both is awesome. <laughs> I love At that. At the same time. I love that. All right. Well, can you tell our listeners where they can find you and um, say hello to you? Absolutely. Uh, go at thelegaldrugdealer.com. That is the website for my podcast. If you type the Legal Drug Dealer podcast in any of the search uh, platforms that we have out there, you will find me. And uh, my podcasts have a new episode every Tuesday morning. And I would love to have you over and listen and tell us what you might want to know and I will find somebody to teach us that because I'm learning with you as well. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. It was super informative. I hope the listeners like it and um, definitely want to keep in touch and talk about your show. Absolutely. And then they need to come to listen to you and my show as well. So we need to go to that. Thank you. Right.
Awesome. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Raw Fork Podcast. And I truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you learned something new from it, I would really appreciate if you can give us a five-star rating and a sincere review so that more people can find it across the podcast platforms. To get in touch with me, please go on rawfork.com or email me directly at marina at rawfork.com. Take good care and I'll see you back here next week.